Take your Bibles and turn back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, we will be here for part of our message this morning. We will go to other portions of the Scripture, but we will start with this. This time of the year, I really don't like. You go, why? <laughs> um, it's not so much the season itself. It's just the transition from fall to winter. We're in that time of the year that if you look at people's yards, trees have been, well, trimmed back. There's no leaves on them. Plants and bushes have been cut to the ground in some cases, and it's just kind of blah. You need snow to kind of cover everything so that you don't see what's there. And, and so this kind of transition time, you look at people's yards and it's just kind of like there's not a whole lot of life that's going on. There's not a whole lot of things going on. But there is a, the hope of spring. Because you get to spring and all of a sudden about in our area, it's about March, the end of March, hopefully, uh, beginning of April, you begin to see things come back to life. Those bushes and plants that have been cut down to the ground suddenly have green sprigs that are coming up. And by the time you hit the, the first uh, week of June, these things have blossomed and grown into to large plants and bushes. And you're thinking, how could we have ever thought that that thing was dead? There was no life there. But it's in this season that we look at it and go, I wonder if any of that's going to come back. It looks so brown and dead and cut down. There's no possibility of life coming out of that. Well, that's what we have in Isaiah chapter 11. For those of you that have been here uh, the last couple of weeks, for Christmas uh, season on Sunday mornings, we have been working through a song called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. In that song, which is one of the oldest Christmas songs that we have uh, in our hymn book, uh, there are titles of Christ. And most of them, we have no idea where they're from. We're, we're even thinking, are they in Scripture? And the, the most familiar is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because you read right in the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1, the fact that there's going to be a virgin that shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus, and his name shall be Emmanuel, because that means what? God with us. And we understand that term, but we, we've gotten to some other ones that uh, in this song that you're like, is that in the Scripture? I mean, we're looking, looked a couple weeks ago at this Lord of Might. You go, what, what was that? Uh, well, it's talking about Mount Sinai. Uh, something that ought to have been scary and frightening uh, is used to kind of uh, show that if a God has that kind of power, He's got the power to deliver and be able to do that. And this week, we have uh, what the, the, the third verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel starts with this statement, O Come, Thou Rod of Jesse, free. Thine own uh, from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. And that goes to the course. If you look at some translations of this song, sometimes it just simply says the rod of Jesse, and sometimes it says the root of Jesse. They really can't make up their mind, and you're kind of going, okay, well, what's going on here? Where's this passage, and who really 
cares? You know, it sounds like just some fancy name and really doesn't have any implications uh, for it. Well, it goes back to Isaiah chapter 11. And for us, uh, three weeks ago, we started this passage, but we didn't get to this passage. Because when we studied the passage, O come, O come, Emmanuel, uh, we started off in Isaiah chapter 7. And this prophecy in Isaiah 7 goes all the way to the end of chapter 12. We only dealt with that first part, which was given to a king. I don't know if you remember the king's name. The king's name was a guy by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz was one of the worst kings in the nation of Israel. He had some others that that competed with him for that title. But Ahaz was a man who worshipped many gods except for the one true God. He actually closed down the temple of God there in Jerusalem. He decided he didn't need that. He was a man who took his own children and passed them through the fire, which means what? Well, he offered his children as human sacrifices to gods. He worshipped many different gods. He was a man who was always looking for something or someone to try and solve his problems. Kings that defeated him. He had the Assyrians that defeated him. The, the, excuse me, the Syrians that defeated him. And he went and saw some, some um, altars that they had. And he said, we need altars like what they have because their gods are obviously stronger than ours. So we need to do something with our worship to try and, and match those people's gods. All around, he's a really lousy king. He allows his nation to be captured. There there is over 200,000 people that are hauled out of the land of Judah, put into captivity. If it hadn't been for a prophet of God stopping uh, the nation of Israel and Syria from hauling them further off, uh, Judah would have lost 200,000 people to who knows where. But those kings said, okay, we'll return these slaves. And they did that. But Ahaz is that type of a king. And what God says is, I've got a message, a sign for this Ahaz. And so you read the story in Isaiah chapter 7. We went through this passage, but uh, Isaiah comes with his son, and he says, I have an opportunity for you, Ahaz. Uh, God said, I'll give you a sign. You can ask for whatever sign you want, whether it be in the skies above or from the ground underneath. You can ask for any sign, and he'll show it to you. To show that he's willing to help you if you would just put your trust in him. I mean, imagine that kind of opportunity to be offered any kind of sign from God. What's Ahaz's response? Ah, no, don't need that. Don't need to bother God any. Not interested. And you get to the passage, where, which is famous uh, to us in Isaiah chapter 7, where it is the passage where Isaiah says, okay, well, the Lord will give you a sign. You don't want one, but you're going to get one. And this sign is going to be simply this. Uh, verse 14 of Isaiah 14 or 7, uh, verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel meaning God with us. See, this was a sign that was going to be something that was impossible. A virgin can't have children. It's impossible for this type of thing. So this is going to be a unique sign. And you say, well, what's the importance of this babe that's born? He's going to be God with us. He's going to be God on earth. He's going to be here. 
And uh, the, the thought is, as you go through Isaiah chapter 7, is that he's going to eventually come and free the nation of Israel uh, from their enemies and bring peace on earth. In fact, you get to Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about this child who's going to be born, and it gives us another passage that's oftentimes quoted in the Christmas season. Verse number 6, it says this, "...for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given." And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The idea is wonder of a counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of, the Ho Lord of hosts will perform this. It's simply staying in the end. The Lord's going to do this without question. And the prophecies continue. You get to chapter 9 and chapter 10, and, and Isaiah is just simply saying to Ahaz, things are going to get bad. You've been a miserable king, and, and guess what's going to happen? There's going to be other kingdoms that are going to come in and take over your land of Judah, and they're going to haul people off. And you're going to kind of look around as a nation and go, is there any possibility of peace at all? In fact, in the, the nation of Israel's history, some hundred years after this, in 586, you're going to have the whole of Judah hauled off by a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to level the city of Jerusalem and, and take uh, all of the nation of Israel to the land of Babylon. And it's going to be known as the Babylon captivity. And for 70 years, he's going to hold the nation uh, captive and hostage in the land. I mean, the nation of Israel has no king. He's been cut off. And so when Isaiah eventually gets to this prophecy to Ahaz, I mean, this is all one prophecy to one bad king for the nation of Judah, but he's going through and giving them their history of what it's going to be like. And the, the, the thought is, is there any possibility of peace at all? If, if the monarchy is gone, if the, king, uh, the, the king's line from David, that great king of Israel, the one who slew Goliath and, and uh, escaped his enemies for years and then broadened the, the land of Israel uh, for the nation of Israel and was probably their greatest king, and he was promised by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that somebody in his line would rule forever. But you get to 586 B.C. and there's no king. The nation of Israel is hauled out of the land. What kind of hope is there? I mean, it, it's, it's like what we talked about at the beginning illustration. You look at your, your, your gardens and uh, your household, uh, your, 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 are we going to say your fields? Most of us don't have fields. Your yards. And everything's cut down. You're like, there's no hope of growth again. It's dead. That's what the nation of Israel is thinking. There is no hope. The monarchy's gone. The nation's been hauled off. Is there any hope for the nation of Israel at all? And it's at this point that you have introduced to you this individual that's already been hinted at, going to be born of a virgin, that he is going to be a child, but eventually he's going to rule and reign. 
And imagine this, this one in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 is uh, described by this title, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. See, I, I find it interesting that when we're talking about Jesus the Messiah, the descendant of David, it doesn't say this, that there's a branch coming out of the line of David. It's out of the line of Jesse. You go, who's Jesse? Jesse was David's dad. It's kind of reminding us of the fact there's no monarchy. It's as if David doesn't exist. When you come to the land of Israel, there's no king. For hundreds of years, it was like this after 586. No king, no ruler. It's as if David never existed and his line never existed. And so what it just simply says here, there's going to be someone who comes out of the stem of Jesse. And we, we could put there, you might just want right off to the side what the stem means. It's just simply this, the stump of Jesse. Like a tree that's been cut down and all you're left with is this low-lying, flat piece of uh, wood that's there, roots attached to the ground, and you're going, it's dead. It's been cut off. There's no hope for this. Out of the stump of Jesse, there's going to come forth a rod. And out of the root of Jesse, there's going to come this branch, and you're going, well, what can this branch possibly accomplish? Well, he's going to be able to accomplish a lot. And you go, why is that? Well, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2 states why. This is not going to be a, a normal child that is born. He's going to be a unique child who's empowered by the Spirit of God. Not only is he God, and we know this in the New Testament, God in human flesh, he's also one who's empowered by the Spirit of God. Because this child is described this way in verse number two, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And you say, what is this spirit going to do? Well, you have this sixfold description after this. He's going to be a one who has a spirit of wisdom and understanding on him, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit in the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. It's seven statements about the Spirit. If you read the book of Revelation, it kind of reminds you of that when it talks about the Spirit, and the Spirit is the seven spirits that are amongst the seven candlesticks of the, uh, there in the throne room of God. I mean, here you have the, the Spirit manifested in seven different ways. I mean, this child that is going to be born of a virgin is one who is going to have the ability to do certain things. When it comes to uh, his own character, he's going to be one in verse 2, he's going to have the Spirit of the Lord upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. The idea is this, the word wisdom has the idea, the ability to be able to live in a right way. Some describe wisdom just simply as this, skill in living, having skill at living out life. Well, you think about this, God is infinite in wisdom and infinite in all of his ways. He knows all the possibilities. He knows what to do in every situation because he knows uh, what can happen here. Well, here this child is going to have the spirit of wisdom upon him and the spirit of understanding. And you go, what is that? The idea of discernment. 
He's going to be able to tell right from wrong. He's going to be able to uh, be, be able to discern and make good judgment. Don't you want that in a ruler? <laughs> One who can make good decisions and discern between right and wrong? Uh, this child is described also as one who is going to have counsel and might. Kind of reminds us back that statement, Isaiah chapter 11, that he's going to be a wonderful counselor and a mighty God. When it comes to his relations to mankind, uh, he is going to be one who doesn't require counsel from anyone. He's one who can give counsel to people. And not only that, he is going to be mighty. And you go, what does that mean? It's not just that simply that he's a person who's got a lot of wisdom. Sometimes people like, like that, you think of this, people who are smart necessarily aren't physically strong. And those that are strong, oftentimes you don't put wisdom attached to them. Well, here you've got this king who's both one who's able to give counsel to people. He's wise and intelligent, but he's also mighty and he's strong. He is also, as is described here, this one that's going to be born of a virgin is going to be one who has knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What it's just simply talking about there, here's an individual who understands God. You know, that, that term, the fear of the Lord, uh, is a term for individuals throughout the Old Testament when they are ones who have walked with God and understood who He is. They're ones who fear Him because they have a knowledge of Him. Well, here you've got one who knows God. You go, why? Because He is God. He infinitely knows God because He is God uh, in human flesh. And so as you look at this individual who comes into this world, he is going to be one who comes from a family line that looks like it's not going to be able to accomplish anything. Now, grandparents of Jesus uh, that were kings had been gone for almost 500 years before Jesus showed up. And yet he's going to be one who is able to rule the nations. See, this passage is, is not really emphasizing the first coming of Jesus Christ. We realize this, that there's two comings of Jesus Christ. The first coming is when He was born. And that first time, He came to, well, we'll talk about it here in a little bit, He came to save people from their sins. That was His ultimate purpose. But He is coming a second time, and you go, why? To rule and reign on the earth. And you say, well, what would it be like to have an individual who is like this, who's of a kingly line and has these kind of abilities? He's wise, he's discerning, he's giving counsel, he's mighty, he knows who God is and can act and reflect what God is like because he is God. What would that look like if one was to rule like that on earth? Well, you've got some descriptions of this. Verse 3. And he is one who will, in the middle of verse, will not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, in the sense that he is not merely having to get other people's information to make his decisions. He's able to make decisions in court cases and rulings because he already knows. He's seen. He's not having to require somebody else to give him evidence. He's seen it himself. He's heard what people have done. He's able to make judgment decisions. 
He is one who, as you see in verse 4, with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. As you see there in the book of Revelation, before he comes to set up his kingdoms, he has to battle against the nations of the world that have gathered against God and against the city of Jerusalem and those that follow after God. And in that battle that we know commonly is the battle of Armageddon, he gathers against the nations and it's a one-sided battle. But he and might is going to be able to take out those nations and leave those that are ones who are followers of God and those that have been individuals who have uh, followed him and are poor and weak. And they have put their trust and faith in God. And you say, verse 5, righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his reins. But then, then look at what the world is going to be like. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden. So what was the Garden of Eden like? You read the story in Genesis chapter 2. Can you imagine having this job? Adam is told this, I want you to name all the animals. And what God did is he brought all the animals to uh, Adam and he got to name all of them. Which means he gets to get up close to them. And they're not about to eat him. You know, that hasn't happened in mankind's history since that time in Adam and Eve's uh, garden where there hasn't been some fear of animals. I mean, this week we're going to, uh, as a family, go down to downtown Chicago and they've got uh, the lights in the, the zoo. Do you notice something about the zoo? They've got fences up between you and the animals. You go, why? Because they're dangerous. But what's going to happen when Jesus comes to rule on the earth? It's going to be like the Garden of Eden. What does that look like? Well, how about this? You would never do this in a zoo today. But look at verse number six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And this, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And, you know, sometimes you think about these lion tamers, they got, you know, big guys, whatever, you know. And they, okay, here you're going to have this little child that's leading the lion along with a calf right next to each other or how about this uh, the cow and the bear shall feed the young ones shall lie down together the lion shall eat straw like an ox you go what's the lion's diet right now big steaks and that time no killing going on or how about this uh, the sucking child shall play in the hole of the ass which is one of the most poisonous snakes in the world and the weaned child shall put his hand on a cockatrice's den. A child can put their hand into a den of snakes and be fine. Now, some of you are going, I don't care. I still wouldn't do it. But the fact is, you, a child will be able to do this, one who's got no common sense, and not be hurt by this. And what about uh, in verse 9? It says this, There shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, when the Lord comes back to rule and reign on the earth, we're told in the Revelation it's going to be for a thousand years. This is why you have this statement about the millennium and these type of things. He's going to reign for a thousand years here on earth just to show us what it would have been like to have the Garden of Eden. 
and he's going to rule and reign. There's not going to be all of those things that hurt. And all the nations that can't get along with one another, the Lord's going to calm them down. I mean, that's what's going on in verse 10. In that day, there shall be a root of Jesse. Okay, something coming out of the root of Jesse. There's that, that term, the root of Jesse. Which shall stand for an ensign of the people. You go, what's that? It'll stand as a flag. Back in the old days when you had battles, if you wanted uh, people to gather around you, you would get banners and you would hold them up and they'd go, oh, we're supposed to be over there. We're supposed to meet there. Well, you know what's going to happen uh, when the Lord rules and reigns one day? It's like there's going to be a banner that's held up. And people are going to flock to where he's at. People and nations that you look at today that you're going, they're completely opposed to them. Guess what's going to happen? Those nations are going to flood to Jerusalem. The Jews who for generations have been scattered all over the world in different places, they're going to be able to come to Jerusalem out of all those nations that they've been a part of. You go, well, we have a nation called Israel today. We do. But the majority of the population, especially after that tribulation or the tribulation time, it's going to be scattered all over the world. They're going to come and meet here in Jerusalem. In fact, nations that didn't get along with Israel are actually going to come to the land of Israel and want to. You get to the end of verse 15 and 16. It says, The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. With his mighty wind shall he put his hand over the river and shall smite it into seven streets and make men go over dry shod. You go, what do you mean dry shod? Uh, they don't need waders. You know, their clothes aren't going to get wet. What, what's going to happen here in that time, both the Euphrates River and uh, the River Nile seems to be this way, that the Lord's going to make it so that people that are coming from Egypt will be able to walk to Jerusalem. People in Assyria are going to be able to get there. In fact, you read this in verse number, um, excuse me, verse number 16. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people. It's like the roads are going to be cleared and you're going to have expressways for people to be able to get to Jerusalem. From nations that would not want to see God, wouldn't care about who he is, don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible, they're going to gather in Jerusalem. And you say, well, what is this? And we, we read this in chapter 12. You say, why do we read chapter 12? Well, it's just a song of praise that this is a great God to be able to do this. I mean, look at verse number two. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I mean, this one who came to earth and was born as a baby to save mankind, in the end, when you look at what all the nations are doing, you're going to go, that's an incredible God who can save and bring nations together who have been at war with one another and bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. He's going to do this. This one that is a, simply a branch, seemingly. Not all that impressive. A child born in a manger in the city of Bethlehem, the city of Jesse and David. He's going to be born there, and he is eventually going to rule and reign over the whole earth. And what you find in the Scriptures is this, is that this one, this Messiah, will bring peace on earth, but rescue, uh, or will bring peace on earth. But that's not what the song emphasizes in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. 
I mean, is it important that nations come together and there's peace on earth? I mean, this is the dream of people. This is why they've attempted the United Nations and mankind's tried to make that function. It hasn't worked very well. But one day, we do look for the fact that Jesus will come again and rule here on earth and bring nations together that couldn't come together and put nature at peace that is not at peace right now. But is that the most important thing? The answer is no. You know, what's the most important thing? That people are saved from their sins. It doesn't matter if their present circumstances are better if their eternity is not settled and not taken care of. See, the song that we had in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it it talks about this passage where Jesus will bring the nations together and there will literally be peace on earth. But the song continues where it goes, Thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. Do you realize that every single individual on this globe, no matter what their nationality is and what their race is, they're under the tyranny of one known as the devil or the Satan, the accuser of the brethren, uh, that old dragon, that old serpent as he goes by. They're under his tyranny, and you go, why is that? Well, think about the story of Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, you have this peaceful garden, everything's going great, and Satan, a fallen angel, comes along, and what his goal is is to destroy and put into captivity, eternal destruction, everything he possibly can, especially the chief of God's creation, which is mankind. And so in that garden, he tempts Eve and Adam with the thought that they can become like God, that God's not being fair with them. He's holding things back from them. They can't eat of the one fruit, this one fruit of one tree in the garden, even though they can eat of everything else. They can't eat of that one tree. And Satan gets Adam and Eve to reason out that somehow God's not reasonable, God's not fair, that God really isn't as great as he uh, says he is and declares he is. And what Satan does is that he gets them to rebel. And as such, when they rebelled, what they did is they didn't put themselves under God who had created them and given them life and breath. What they did is that they put themselves under a usurper. A person who was in rebellion himself. And they began to follow him. And you go, well, what were the consequences of that? You know, people go, well, do your own thing. Go your own way. That's how life ought to be lived. And that's what Satan's appeal has been for years. But what they don't realize is that when you do your own thing and go your own way without God, it brings you, well, first of all, sin. It brings you in rebellion against God, but it brings you ultimately to death. And that's what the scripture says. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth what? Death. Death is a separation. It's not only that our body is going to break down and our soul and spirit is going to be separated from it. It's the idea that a person separated from God forever. That's what death is. That's what they talk about when it comes to the second death. That's meaning you're going to be separated from God forever in the Scripture. But as you read the Scripture, you, you find this, that this Messiah, this Christ, this one who's out of uh, the root of Jesse, is one who can deliver individuals who are under oppression 
I mean, if you don't believe that you're under oppression, you ought to just uh, go and sometimes peruse a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. For Ephesians 2 simply declares this, you hath he quickened, he's talking to people who are saved, Uh, he's made you alive, who were once dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You go, who's that? Satan? Who's organizing everything here to, to get you to want to rebel against God? And that spirit that now energizes the children of disobedience among whom you had your conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lust of your flesh desire fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as others the idea is this is that you were wandering through this world and you allowed the world to tempt you you allowed satan to tempt you you allowed the internal traitor called your flesh to tempt you and you were a slave to all of those things it came, and we put it this way, sinning comes naturally to people. You don't have to teach people how to sin. Okay, it's part of our nature, our fabric of who we are, and we've got everything around us, the world and the organized world under the devil himself trying to tempt us to rebel against God using sometimes good things to get us to fall into sin. He's doing this, and for an unsaved person, a natural person as it's described sometimes they just fall into sin over and over and over again they can't free themselves no matter what they attempt to do what they try and do and go i I can fix this problem they find themselves still a slave to those lusts and desires and you find in acts chapter uh excuse me in hebrews chapter 2 A passage that talks about why Jesus Christ is so important. This one who came into the world was born. Hebrews 2 and verse 10 says this, For it became Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make Him the captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And why Jesus came to this world, took on the form of a human being, is so that he could die in our place. Die as our sinless substitute. Why? So that we could be unified with him. Safe with him. And it goes on in this, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, it says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, referring to Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, He might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Why did Jesus Christ uh, come into this world? To free you from the worst of enemies. To free individuals from the worst of captivities. And that is this, being captive to sin and its consequences and its punishment. And the person who has been leading out on this is the devil. And what Jesus Christ came in by the cross is that he gave the ability for people to suddenly be free from slavery to sin. They don't have to sin. 
They don't have to do those things. You go, why? Because Jesus saves, rescues, delivers. I mean, that's how, that's, those terms are synonymous. Saves, rescues, delivers. Those are all terms used to describe Christ. But think about this as you read uh, that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It ends with a statement. I mean, just to read the lines here, that uh, these individuals, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save. I mean, realize this, a person who is in their sins, that dies in their sins, will go to an eternity in hell. Jesus Christ on the cross frees people from not having to go to an eternity in hell. But understand the grand thing that's given to them. The end of the song ends with this, and give them victory or the grave. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Understand this. I find this to be the, 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 the difficulty of being a pastor. I preach a lot of funerals. Thankfully, I'm preaching a lot of funerals for people who know Christ. They know Jesus is their Savior. So preaching a funeral for a person like that is not as difficult. They at least know where their soul and spirit's at. But, but I have to go through the ceremony of, first of all, preaching well, oftentimes the person's body there in front of me where there's this emptiness because that body's there and we know there's been a failure there that body is no longer functioning like it used to and you go why because the person died well why did the person have to die because of sin sin destroys and then I have to go to the graveside and stand uh, as we put the body into the ground. And you just think, is there any hope for that? It, it, it's, it's like that cut off stump. Is there any hope of life? We've just put the body in the ground. There, there's no hope for that body to ever have life again. It looks like death has gotten its victory. Mm-mm. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as you have that passage in front of you, the Apostle Paul is talking about not the Christmas story so much, but what we would call the Easter story. Now this I say, brethren, verse 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. You can't get to heaven by yourself. Not going to happen. But, verse 51, the Apostle Paul says this, Behold, I show you in a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. And the idea of we shall not all sleep is the idea that we're not all going to die. But we shall all be changed. What do you mean by we're all going to be changed? This body, since you were born, has been falling apart. And the older you get, the faster it seems to fall apart it seems the velocity gets a whole lot faster but you're born and your body's already corrupting falling apart what does he mean by the fact that we're going to be changed well this body's not going to be continue to fall apart in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised 
Never to fall apart again. Never to have any of the problems of this life. uh, The diseases and the degeneration that goes on. No, this body is going to be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And then the statement, for this corruptible, the Apostle Paul speaking of himself, must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 54, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Do you realize for those that have faith in Jesus Christ, one day, though they may die, their body put in the ground, their soul and spirit's in the presence of God, because the scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But their body that they, 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 they were given to enjoy life and, and enjoy earth like it was, uh, is dead. No life to it. But one day at the resurrection death that looked like it had cut off an individual made them a stump no life no hope are suddenly going to have life and you go why it's not because of something they've done no you read first corinthians 15 it's because jesus christ was one who looked like he was cut off and he was put in the ground but then he rose from the dead his body that was put there that looked like there was no hope he rose from the dead and you go well for what purpose that he might be the first fruits the first of many other individuals who would have life and body forever that's a more incredible a victory than him coming and bringing all the nations together and bringing peace on earth is for him to take individuals who had been opposed to him all of their lives and they had been destroyed by sin but yet they put their faith and trust in him that one day those individuals who in their body sinned against him all sorts of times those individuals both body soul and spirit will stand before god in his presence forever changed Never to be like it was before. At that point where we receive our new resurrection bodies, then that statement, death is swallowed up in victory. I mean, the sting of this, the idea, oh grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That one day, the body that you suffer in right now that's collapsing. If you have faith and trust in that one who died to save you from your sins, that body will raise a new, never to fall apart for a thousand years. 10,000 years? No. It's going to be a body that lasts forever and never suffers a single bit of the degeneration or sickliness or sorrow or weakness that we experience in this life. It's going to last forever. You go, that's an incredible thing. This one who himself was cut off, his line was cut off, yet he is one who by his death on the cross and then rising from the dead can give victory or the the song says uh, the grave you know how the end of that song ends rejoice 
Rejoice! Emmanuel, God with us, shall come to thee. O Israel, God came to this world not just to bring peace on earth, but He came into this world to save sinners and to give them life for eternity. And even though, as you read the story, it looks like this one is one part of a line that's cut off and he himself was cut off and put into the grave. But yet, like a branch or a shoot that springs forth, he came back to life with the promise of life eternal for all of us. And so that is where you get this, this rod of Jesse, one that seems himself and his line to be cut off is the one who can bring life because he experienced life out of death. Praise be to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this one who came to earth, suffered amongst us, lived 33 years, this Jesus who was more than just a man, he was God and human flesh. We thank you for his willingness to die to pay for our sins. He lived a sinless life so he could be our sinless substitute. We thank you for your son who came into this world, suffered at the hands of this world that was created by him, died, but in his death, that was the very seeds of life eternal because he rose from the grave. And his promise is all that believe on him should not perish and have everlasting life lord that is a glorious promise through your son this one who is out of the root of jesse the rod of jesse this jesus babe in a manger who will one day be a mighty ruler and the king but his greatest accomplishment is the saving of individuals souls and bodies for eternity so we rejoice Lord, thank you for your son. He allows us to be in your presence today praying and one day will allow us to stand bodily in your presence in heaven because of his great sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We praise you, Lord, for that and we thank you in his name. Amen.